Our reading this morning is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 6 through 12. Verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord. I didn't turn my mic on. Sorry, y'all. The question is, why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? Uh, and I was saying that that question is a common objection by people who to say, like, I, I don't know if I could believe in the God of the Bible. I don't know if I could believe in a God that would, you know, allow children to starve to death, that would allow genocide to happen or things like you know, the Holocaust or the Gulag or the transatlantic slave trade. I just can't believe in a God that would allow those things. And man, that's a really tough objection to face. If, if you're a Christian, it can be hard to know. How do you even begin to talk about something like that? I, but let's be honest. It's not just non-believers who have that objection. Christians ask that same question. When tragedy strikes our lives, when a loved one dies, when our we hit really hard economic times when we get sick, prolonged sickness, when, when a relationship falls apart, when, when we start to suffer in our lives, we too will ask the question, God, why? Why did you let this happen? So if that's you, if you've ever asked or are right now asking the question, why does God allow pain and suffering in my life and in the world, Good news. God has given us an entire book of the Bible that addresses that very question, the book of Job. 
And that's the book we're going to look at this morning. And that is the question that we are going to be asking this morning. Why does God allow pain and suffering? But before we begin addressing the question, let's actually find out how the book of Job address, like, sets up the question. Okay, so the first part of Job, we, we meet Job. He's a blameless and upright man. And everything in the book of Job is meant to commend Job to us. Okay, He's, we're meant to like him, to admire him. From beginning to end, you're just meant to be like, man, Job is a great guy. He's not perfect. But compared to everybody else in his life, he is a righteous man. But then in, in verse 6, we're teleported. We're up to heaven. And there is God in heaven. And it says this funny phrase, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, which is kind of a funny phrase. But the idea is that God is like an ancient king holding court. Okay? And the va the, his vassals, his servants would come and they'd pay tribute or... He would have, those would come to the king with a, a dispute for him to arbitrate. They would ask, well, king, we need your justice. Will you decide on this situation? And so enter then Satan. Now, we have some very specific ideas about who Satan is because we live after the writing of the New Testament. But the word Satan, it's in Hebrew, Satan. It means enemy or adversary, but it can also mean accuser. So in God's heavenly courtroom, Satan is kind of filling the role of the prosecution, okay? And then the prosecution and the Lord, they, they come together and they kind of come up with this, this bet, if you will, this, uh, this agreement. But notice something very, very interesting. It isn't Satan who speaks first. It's God. He says, well, where have you come from? No, oh, you know, walking up and down on the earth. And then God initiates this like agreement and says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know if Job ever got to read his own story. Probably not. But if I was Job and I was reading my own book, at, this is the point where I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why you got to bring me into this, God? But God, he doesn't. He doesn't ask Job. He doesn't say, run it by him first. He just says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. And true to his name, the accuser says, oh, well, of course he's that way because you bless him. You give him everything he wants. Of course, he's going to be faithful to you. But if you take away everything, if you take away the benefits, he'll curse you to your face because God, he doesn't love you for you. He loves the benefits of the relationship. And in chapter two, that goes a, st a stretch farther and Satan is allowed to strike Job's health. So at the end of chapter two, Job has no children that are left alive. He has no stuff and he's covered in boils and sores, but it's God who lets it happen. He actually is the one that sets the parameters of the test. And throughout the book of Job, Job is like complaining, but he doesn't blame Satan. He blames God. He says, God has set himself against me and God doesn't correct him. And at the end of the book, it's God that takes away the suffering you see, from beginning to end, what the book of Job shows us is that God's in control. He is ordaining Job's suffering to happen because God is sovereign. That's the big word we use to say God is in control of everything that happens in all of history. All right, now, pause for just for a second. If you're a kid at home and you're watching this or you're new to the Christian faith, Here's a, here's a great question to ask. When, when someone says, when God's in control of everything, wait a minute. If God's in control of everything, does that mean God is responsible for evil in the world? 
Like, did God cause sin and evil? No. And the best way to articulate how God is always in control of everything and yet not responsible for evil, I think the best place that that gets articulated is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yep. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, talks about God's providence. That's his controlling of everything that's happening. And it says that he does so in two ways. First, he is the first cause, meaning he just directly causes things to happen. But the other way is through second causes, meaning that he allows people, or in this case, Satan, to make, to make choices, to do things. He knows what they're going to do. He knows the consequences of what they're going to do, and he allows it to happen. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Job. God doesn't cause the suffering in Job's life. That's Satan who does it, but God knows Satan's going to take the bet. And he, know, and he knows what Satan's going to do and what the fallout's going to be. So God is both simultaneously in control and yet not responsible for evil. Okay, on pause, let's go back to our story. So God sets up this parameters, and of course, he's, or it's not just, let's revisit the question, it's not just that he allows evil. He ordains pain and suffering in the world. He's ordained Job's pain and suffering. So of course, that raises a question for us. Why? Why would God do that? And that's not just a question for us. Ancient people would have asked the same question. So, of course, we're only in chapter two. There's like 40 more chapters to go. So we, oh, the rest of the book is going to answer the question. And it does, but not in the way that we expect. Okay, so here we are. Job is miserable. He's in pain. He's got these sores. Everything's been taken away. And he's got these three friends that come and they sit with him. And they cry with him for a bit, but then they begin this back and forth. And it's in this kind of poetic exchange, this like debate that they have, where we begin to flesh out the answer to the question, why does God allow ordain pain and suffering in the world? Okay, now Job's friends, even though they have a lot to say, they don't have a lot to say. They really make one argument over and over and over and over again. They say it in different ways, but they're basically making the same argument again and again and again. What is that argument? Well, here is Eliphaz, the Temanite, very garden variety name. And what does he say in Job 4? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. What's the argument? There's basically saying, okay, Job, God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. So you're suffering, so God's punishing you for some wickedness that you've done. So just repent of the wickedness and the suffering will go away. Simple as that. Now, there are some really big assumptions operating underneath the surface of that argument, okay? Now, a big one, oh, sorry. A big one is that God is just. Now, Job agrees with that assumption, and the rest of the Bible does too. And, and the way it works is this, that the Bible presents us with God as the creator, meaning that Everything that exists is, exists because he created it. Nothing existed before God, and nothing came into existence outside of God, meaning God caused everything that exists to come to existence, including justice. So if you and I, if we have a sense of this is right and that's wrong, this is a just and this is unjust, if we have that sense internally, it's because God put it there, okay? So therefore, God is perfectly just. He's the source. 
of justice. Okay, so that assumption's right on. That's the Bible everywhere else in God's word agrees with that assumption. However, they make a big logical step and they go, okay, because God is perfectly just, therefore he must run the universe according to this very narrow view of justice. He must run the universe, manage the whole universe according to this very strict one-to-one correlation between action and reward. Meaning you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Uh, The way we would describe that in our world is that we would say that's the law of karma. Right? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. That's karma. And to a certain extent, that makes sense, right? I mean, generally speaking, if, if you're a selfish, capricious, lying, deceitful, cheating person, people don't want to associate with you. Sorry if you didn't know that already. But, and that lack of social capital in your life, that's going to have negative, benef- that's going to have negative impact in your life, right? Um, conversely, if you're generally a decent person who tries to tell the truth, who tries to treat people with dignity and respect, people are going to want to associate with you. And that relational capital is going to have benefits in your life. And the book of Proverbs, which is similar to the book of Job, it's a wisdom book, it's filled with examples of this, right? And that, yeah, of course, if you live life God's way in God's world, things are going to generally work out well for you. But is that an absolute? Does, that, does the law of karma, is it always in play? Or are there exceptions? Now, Job's friends are arguing, no, it's always in play. It's an absolute. But Job comes along and he says, no, there are absolutely exceptions to the law of karma. And I am case in point. If you're using the mathematics of karma, the math doesn't add up. I don't deserve the suffering that is happening in my life. This is not fair. That's Job's argument, and he makes it again and again and again and again, and his friends just keep insisting. They, they go as far in chapter 22. They begin to come up with, they're like, you, this is probably the sins that you committed, Job. You should apologize for them, okay? But Job just keeps insisting, no, I'm blameless. I didn't do anything that deserves this. This isn't right. It's not fair. And Job's right. The world is filled with exceptions to the law of karma. I mean, just it, you don't have to look that hard. We have some really dear friends. They, they don't go to this church. They don't, they're not even in this state, but we've known them for a long time, and, and they're really wonderful people. We love them so much, and they've loved us really well, and they've loved their, their own church and community really well. They're not perfect, but they're really great people. And over the past few years, they watched as their youngest child, their, their only son, fight a horrific, painful form of cancer. And during COVID-19, he lost that battle. And they had, to, they had to say goodbye. And they did not deserve that. It was not fair. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to Job and say, you know, I know I'm not a perfect person, but I don't think I deserve that. I don't think that's fair that I had to go through that. The world is filled with exceptions to the law of karma. So what does this lead Job to? Job, again, he insists and insists and says, there are exceptions to the rule. This, this doesn't add up. And so he finally, at the very, very end, and he basically kind of plants his flag and says, okay, 
Here's, here's what I've come to. If God ordains everything that happens, and he does, and if God is perfectly just, and he is, then why is this happening to me? God owes me an explanation. That's exactly what he says. This is, comes from chapter 31. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. I thought, oh, that I had the indictment written on by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job's basically saying, if God were here, I would walk up and say right to his face, God, you owe me an explanation. And lo and behold, God does show up face to face. And God gives him an answer. What does God have to say for himself? Let's find out. Job chapter 37. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? You, you get God's argument? He goes on like this for several chapters, describing the complexity and even dangers of creation. What's God saying? Essentially, Job is saying, God, why did you allow this pain and suffering to come into my life? And God's answer is, Job, the answer to your question is above your pay grade. Because I'm the creator and you're the creation, I don't owe you an explanation. But Job demands, God, you, you owe me an explanation. And God says, no, I don't. Because I'm God. I'm infinite, eternal. And you, Job, are not God. You're finite. You're limited. Let me put it to you like this. We've already established that God is constantly exercising his providence, right? He's sovereign over everything that happens, which means that at every single millisecond of every single day in all of history, from the very, very first day until the very, very last day, constantly and always, God is ordaining, ordering, and managing everything that happens. Every person, every plant and animal, every droplet of water, every tiny little particle of air, every microscopic cell, every atom, every proton and neutron and electron in every planet and star and moon and asteroid everywhere throughout our entire vast universe all the time. And he's never let that down, not even once. I don't know about you. I can barely manage my family's monthly budget, much less the universe. Do we really think that if God were to explain the vast and complex network of cause and effect that he has woven into the very fabric of the universe that we could even begin to understand? Do you really think that if God were to offer you an explanation that you have the perspective and the capacity to understand his answer? Much less criticize it. Are we so arrogant that we think we could run the universe better than God? So there's your answer. There's your answer. God said, why, God, do you ordain pain and suffering in the world? And God says, 
you are not privy to that information, i.e. none of your business. And even if I were to tell you, you would not have the capacity to understand it. So how are we all feeling? We like that answer, we feeling satisfied? I think, if we went, I think if we were all being really, really honest, we'd all go, no, no, I don't like that answer at all. I just, I just, that makes me feel, feel even worse. Why is that? Can we be honest with ourselves and admit the problem is not the answer, the problem is our question. You see, friends, when we demand the why, why, explain, God, why did this happen? We're, look, we're asking for information. But information has no power to soothe the human heart. And it makes sense when we're in pain, when we're hurting, we, yes, we start grasping for information. Explain this to me. Why did that happen? I want all of the details. Tell me everything that has happened. I want to know. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. And even when the information is as good as it can be and the explanation is very, very thorough, we still don't feel better because information cannot soothe a hurting human heart. Only relationship can do that. You see, friends, why is not really an honest question. It's not the real question. Yes, when we're hurting, the cry on our lips is, God, why did you let this happen? But underneath it is a much deeper and far more painful question, and it's a relational one. God, do you care? Do you care about me? Because when you let that happen, it didn't feel like you do. And we almost never ask that question because it's so risky. It's so vulnerable. It just feels so terrifying. And so we avoid it by asking an information question, even though no matter what the answer is, it never, it never makes us feel any better. Do you think we could ask the real question? Do you think we could be brave enough to ask the real question that, God, do you care? And if we were that brave, what would God say? Well, what happened to Job? Well, what happened to Job is that God finishes what he has to say, and then Job, being the upright man, he repents and says, God, you're God, I'm not. And God then vindicates Job before his friends. He says to Job's friends, you have not spoken of me what is right. You put words in my mouth. So I want you to make a sacrifice. Seven bulls, seven rams, but bring them to Job, and he'll make the sacrifice for you, and he'll pray for you. And I'll listen to Job because he spoke of me what is right. So Job is vindicated before his friends, and then God restores everything that was taken away, and then some. And Job is comforted by his friends and family and community. So God cares for Job, but I'm not Job. You're not Job. How? In fact, if I'm honest, I, feel, I, 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 tend to, I tend to feel like I'm a little bit more like Job's friends. I'm, I'm the guy that I have a hard time being quiet when I should be quiet. So does God care for me? Does God care for you? How do we know? You probably know where I'm going with this, friends. We have something so much better than what Job had. Because God sent an even more upright man than Job. One that is not just relatively righteous, but one that is perfectly righteous. And that man made a sacrifice on our behalf, not from the blood of bulls and goats, but from the blood of his own precious son, the Lord Jesus on the cross. He took on all of our suffering, all of our sin and our misery, and even death itself. And on the cross, 
all of that swallowed him whole. But surprise, surprise, when death swallowed the Lord Jesus, it found itself swallowed up in victory. You see, friends, if you are connected to Jesus, then there is a day coming. And we talked about this when we just, just recently when we looked at Revelation. There's a day coming where God is going to come back and he's going to get rid of all the suffering. Every tear will be wiped away from every eye. There will be no mourning or sadness or pain. God is so committed to you. He cares so deeply for you that he sent his son to hell and back again on the cross just to deal with the pain and suffering in your life. Does God care for you? Oh, yes. He signed and sealed his love and care for you in the very blood of his son. So, friend, I don't know why God has allowed the specific suffering that's come into your life. I don't know. I don't know how it fits into the greater the plan, but I know, it's because, I know it is not because he doesn't care. He deeply cares for you. He loves you. Why does God ordain pain and suffering? That's the wrong question. The real question is, does God care? Yes, he cares, because he sent his only begotten son to die for us on the cross so that all of our suffering could be dealt with and so that we could have an eternal relationship with God forever. Can you trust him? Can you trust God to manage the universe knowing that ultimately what he has in store for you is a restoration of everything? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us and that you care for us. Thank you that you cared for us so deeply that you sent your only son to die in our place so that we could be with you forever. And that all of our suffering, all of our pain, every bit of it, not just, not just the worst bits that we don't like, but all of it would one day and forever just be a forgotten memory. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that day, help us by the power of your, your power, Holy Spirit, Help us to trust you and to rely on you. See us through until that day. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.